You're listening to Monocle on Saturday, first broadcast on the 25th of June 2022 on Monocle 24. Hello there, I'm Emma Nelson and this is Monocle on Saturday. A very warm welcome to your weekend and welcome to the programme too. Today I'll be joined in the studio by my guest Justin Quirk. He'll be going through the newspapers with me and we'll also hear from Andrew Muller as he looks back at the last seven days news. We learned anyway that it had been quite the week for banning stuff as we learned that listeners to Ukrainian radio stations would henceforth have to struggle along without hearing much of this sort of thing find out later what it is. That's all coming up in Monocle on Saturday, live on Monocle 24. And a very warm welcome to you. If you have just switched on your radio, I'm Emma Nelson and this is Monocle on Saturday. Before we begin, a quick look at what's making today's news. President Joe Biden has called the US Supreme Court's decision to overturn a woman's right to an abortion a sad day and a grave error for the United States. He's called on voters to have the final word. Ukrainian forces have been ordered to withdraw from Severodonetsk. The retreat will leave all of Luhansk under Russian control, except for the city of Lysychansk. And two people have been shot dead and 14 injured some seriously in a shooting in the centre of the Norwegian capital, Oslo. Those are the headlines now. Let's dive straight in. I'm delighted to say the writer and editor Justin Quirk has decided to give up his Saturday morning to come into the studio and tell us about the news. A very good morning to you, Justin. Good morning. Emma. How is your Saturday playing out now? Is it going? Uh, it's an earlier start than normal, but I'm I am fully caffeinated. <laughs> I'm fully up to speed on the papers, so I'm ready to go. I'm glad to hear it. Now, before we came on air, we were actually talking about the fact that, you know, when we pull together all the stories for this and you You've compiled a a, a delicious array of of morsels for us to go through in the next 20 minutes or so. Um, But so much of it is dreadful news. And there's an absolute weariness to this. And I have to accept, we're going to go to Roe v. Wade in a minute. But I was when the Roe v. Wade judgment came in at the Supreme Court banning a woman's right, automatic right to an abortion, a bit of me thought, I don't have the space for this. Everything has gone so far that at what point do I have to say, actually, I can't contemplate or try and process this because this is too much. I'm going to actually actively probably not engage too much of it. That is a dreadful thing from a woman's point of view for starters, from a human rights point of view. But are you finding things utterly worrying? I I am. Um, I don't think it's that terrible a viewpoint to take. I mean, I think we have to be realistic about compared to even a generation ago, we are saturated and flooded with information in a way that just no generation has been in previous history and there is a limit to how much of this stuff you can absorb and process and work with and you think even within my lifetime the norm was that you watch the news headlines at 6 p.m and 9 p.m and that was it and you know you took whatever came in those 30 minute bulletins and i think you know the news is terrible at the moment but we have a civic responsibility not just to be informed but also to be active and if you're over-informed and you just shut down, then you can't be an active mm. participant in that. So I think there's something to be said for metering the amount of information you take in, but then act, acting more responsively in the way that you do. And as a result, you were saying before we went on air about the fact that you're now not sort of like putting yourself on a news diet, but but you described a, a kind of a news consumption regime, which which mirrors the kind of news watching that we did 10, 15 years ago. You have a kind of an appointment to view 
system. Yeah, I, I try and stick to it. I try not to look at the headlines or social media first thing in the morning until about lunchtime. Then I'll check on the news at 1pm, 6pm and 9pm. And I honestly don't feel any less informed for doing that. Because often, you know, sometimes, yes, there's a huge story breaking and you need to check in on it. But there's also so much chaff that just gets thrown up by the news cycle that often when you check in by 9pm, something which was a huge drama at 2pm has either been debunked or has, you know, drifted away. So you don't actually miss a great deal. And also, I'm self-employed and I work at home. I cannot <laughs> just spend all day sitting there watching rolling news. So it's it's self-control as much as anything. You would go absolutely bananas. And obviously, I'm going to wildly disagree with anybody who doesn't want to w- listen to a radio programme at seven o'clock in the morning in London. I present a news programme. I really do need to sort myself out. Um, OK, let's have a look at the the... the the press. I mean, there are stories here, and there's a story in the Financial Times that we'll come to later on, which perhaps keys into keys into a little bit of the conversation that we've just had. But we do have to talk about Roe versus Wade. Dare I say, it was a very expected judgment. Mm. Um, but the way that it's been interpreted, and, and the way that the reaction has been has been given from across the world, has, has been has been really profound, hasn't it? And very thoughtful. It really has been, and there's. I mean, I should say, in credit to the press, there is some excellent coverage across the board of this today, really deep dive, and the FT has a very good historic explainer on how we got where we are today. Um, The piece I signed in on was um, Jennifer Rubin's uh, opinion column in the Washington Post today. Um, That was interesting in that it took a slightly more um, sort of legalistic uh, view of what this actually means. Um, Rubin's point is, as she said, there's the very obvious issue here of the grotesque damage this is doing to women women's rights you know the agency of the body but then there's a secondary issue that this is also a huge assault on the constitutional order of the united states of america and she said the to the point where this is essentially delegitimized the supreme court and you know for historic concept this is a body which until very very recently was second only to the american military in terms of trust and support among the public it was seen as being somewhat above the political process this decision which as she says is just essentially without precedent in terms of the way that a majority of the court has essentially just flipped standing precedent in legality has essentially delegitimised the court in the eyes of an incredibly significant number of the public. I mean, most surveys, as far as one can measure this stuff, breaks down that around somewhere sort of 60 to 65% of the public are in favour of safe, legal uh, abortion procedures being available to women. Now, there's some grey areas within that, but it's broadly a two-thirds majority think that women should have this. So it's essentially foisted what is not a popular or pluralistic decision onto the country at large. And she says, you know, the the court's decision may result in women's deaths, but it's certainly killed off what is left of the court's credibility. And for that, there is no solution in sight. The, the, the US Supreme Court is this very diff- difficult hybrid, isn't it? I mean, other countries, I mean, the United Kingdom decided to get rid of the um, the, the, the lords the, the, and, and put in a, a politically neutral Supreme Court a, a couple of decades ago in order to solve this problem, that the judiciary cannot be political. That is what the whole of the separation of powers, rule of law, the whole thing, the reason why our societies hold together and our democracies hold together is that there are checks and balances which are neutral. The fact that we have now a Supreme Court which is so heavily skewed towards a more right-wing series of judgments. She's right, isn't she? Because it sort of questions the whole legal system. That said, 
What do you do about it? For, because if we looked at what Joe Biden was saying last night, he was saying we have to elect people. We've got the midterms coming up. This is where we use our democratic right to vote to try and change all this. But ultimately, a democracy, a strong democracy, has to have a separation between the courts and the, and the government. Well, it has to have two things. It has to have that separation, but it also has to have a true legitimacy ground. Yeah, the, the whole founding point of a democracy is it has to have a legitimacy which is drawn from the public. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure what a historical precedent for this is where, you know, a you know, a minor in terms of numbers body of the government has essentially just flipped public opinion so heavily and you know the potential routes forward i suppose there is a legalistic route in that if they say well look the court has essentially robbed itself of its own legitimacy so all cards are on the table does that include court packing you know do while they still have the chance the democrats go okay fine we'll just appoint 25 new justices and overall that majority do we then go into a sort of ping pong game where every time the administration changes the court is packed further you know, I, th I think, to the best of my knowledge, there's no limit formally on how many justices can be on that court. Um, and then there's also, you know, looking at the process of how these justices were applied, you know, the execrable Susan Collins, the senator of Maine, came out saying, well, you know, I was, I was assured by these justices they were going to do no such thing. Well, mm. yeah, I mean... Please God, Even I knew that there was a problem coming. <laughs> please God, Susan Collins is never allowed to look at her own emails or respond to any you know, inquiries from people who have uh, you know, money deposited in a bank account for her because that is one gullible fool of a woman. But It, yeah. it, it makes the United States quite ungovernable now, doesn't it? I mean, I mean, Joe Biden's stuffed with this one and it, and it, and it divides the United States in such a way. Um, and this is not on political grounds. This is on human rights grounds. And that suddenly goes really deep. Yeah, I mean, I, I genuinely have no idea how this will play out. Um, I mean, the essentially, it feels like a huge part of the country has just been, to some degree, completely disenfranchised. And I think the incredibly sinister line in Thomas's judgment when he wrote that out, saying essentially all these other legal privacy decisions are now on the table. So again, does this mean you know gay marriages, gay partnerships, contraception? Um, the fact that he was then sort of floating that of like, you know, this does not stop here. I think a lot of people may be waking up in America today feeling rather more politically engaged than they were 24 hours ago. And having divided the country in terms of gender rights as well, it's absolutely incredible that this affects 50% of the population. It's, in, mm. it's absolutely unbelievable. Right, let's move on um, to a story which broke a couple of days ago. It's the absolutely catastrophic earthquake in Afghanistan. Um the search has already been called off. We have a thousand dead, and it, we—I mean, Afghanistan did not go into this in a good state. Let's be absolutely honest about this. It was already experiencing famine, disaster, Taliban scorched earth approach on every kind of rights, and then nature went and played a part. I mean, this is one of the most tragic elements of natural disasters that wherever they play out, we always see that the you know, they're a force multiplier for the weaknesses that are already within the country. You know, an earthquake can hit the west coast of America and some roof slates will come loose. The same magnitude quake can hit somewhere in the developing world and hundreds of people will be left dead. Um, there's a very good piece in Al Jazeera today um, where they've reported they're one of the few agencies that still actually have people on the ground there. For understandable reasons, there's very little in terms of a western media presence in the country at the moment. Um 
It's had, I think, for that reason, surprisingly little coverage, given the magnitude of this event. As you say, Afghan is an earthquake-prone country. Even by those standards, this is a 5.9 magnitude event. It was the deadliest in two decades. As far as I'm told, we think so. It's killed at least 1,000 people, destroyed or damaged about 10,000 houses. And as you go through this piece, it's just this sort of catalogue of disaster. The mobile phone towers are down. Power lines have then triggered rocks and mudslides. Uh, mountain roads have been blocked. <clears throat> the only way in and out appears to be by helicopter. There are clearly not enough of these. Um, their reporter, Ali Latifi, is there. He's done a, you know excellent job on this piece. Um, as you say, one of the most damning details was Mohammed Nassim Haqqani, spokesperson for the Taliban's disaster ministry, who told the agency that the search operation has finished. As you say, this is 48 hours after the event. Um, even if you're digging people out by hand, people do live for longer than that in earthquakes. So the fact that this appears to have been wrapped up with no further explanation is appears to be a sort of grim and grim capstone on what's an incredibly grim story already. Um, there's a lovely moment, though, because you always look for these tiny glimpses of hope, don't you? And the, the BBC's correspondent out there, Sekunda Kermani, who is, I, in my book, is, is fabulous, um, has this wonderful moment that he's just put online to say that despite the fact that people's homes have been utterly and permanently destroyed, um, the group he was interviewing would not let him leave the interview until they'd offered him some apricots from a tree. Mm. Um, there's that sense, isn't there, that, that the, the identity of Afghans and Afghanistan is often subsumed by disaster. It is overwhelmed by disaster. But you have accounts, you have, you have friends who have been reporting out there who just marvel at the beauty of the country and marvel at the beauty of the people. I mean, that, that's the real tragedy, that you know we have this image of a country that's been consumed by war and violence, and yet that small anecdote there chimes exactly with the experience of every single person I know who's worked there, also in Pakistan, Iran, yeah, these countries that we often have, I think, quite a one-dimensional view of um, through, you know, the reporting because it's often based around, you know, disaster, revolution, strife. And yet everyone I know who's worked in these countries on the ground comes back with a fairly steady stream of stories about that, about that generosity of spirit. Um, now, we talked about the idea of um, how bad news has become something that we're having to try to uh, moderate in our own consumption and the fact that narratives have got nastier and um, trickier. And there's a really good long read in the Financial Times, isn't there, talking about vice si signalling. Um, for those of us who are not aware of what this exp exp um, expression means, what is vice signalling and why is it so dangerous, Justin? Well, it's the uh, sort of counterpoint, it's the ugly twin brother of virtue signalling. Okay. So when people sort of complain about well-meaning... Uh, centrist liberals like myself um, saying and doing things to sort of, you know, like garner public approval and sort of show that you're doing the right thing. Vice signalling is the opposite, where people very ostentatiously adopt the most offensive viewpoints imaginable and the most sort of unpleasant policies purely to sort of show that they are not like that. Um, it's the cover story in today's FT Weekend magazine. Consistently one of the best weekend magazine supplements out there, I think. Um, Stephen Bush, who's recently joined the paper for the New Statesman, um, has written a piece how vice signalling swallowed electoral politics. Um, and he, said, he asks why it is that so many politicians now make these ostent ostentatiously authoritarian conversation, conversation starting pledges, like, you know, Johnson's policy with Rwanda, Trump with the border wall in Mexico, and you know, these things that never really go anywhere, or they do in a very limited way, um, but they become a huge plank of this sort of policy. So the whole point of this vice signalling is not to actually ever, well... I suppose this is here in the United Kingdom that it is a lot of the dog whistle politics that we hear and all the, the, the utterly vile rhetoric that comes out from politicians' mouths 
does not ever intend to be put into real policy. Is that correct? Often not by the administration, but as he says, the risk is is that it potentially opens up a space where a subsequent administration may be more serious about implementing this stuff. It can move the Overton window, um, or it can be a sort of rhetorical feint where you keep everyone talking about, say, the Mexico border wall, which I think... 80 metres of which got built in four years at a time when they controlled, you know, both branches of government. Great work, lads. Um, and yet, I wonder if it's still there. I'll have to look that up. Probably in some way, shape or form. It's been broken <laughs> up for spares. Um, but, you know, but things like that become sort of rhetorical faint where all the attention is on that while often much more egregious stuff is going on uh, on the quiet. He concludes by saying, the real problem with vice signalling is that it risks sending what is in a democracy the most dangerous signal of all, that politicians do not really care about their electorate's concerns other than as a device to win and hold on to power. But in terms of certain parties, I think that is something... I mean, I think it has been... Acknowledged for decades that the Conservatives' entire raison d'etre is to, to is to win and maintain power, and this is why they always win elections. I mean, whenever, whenever you know, whenever that's up for debate, they all fall into line, and you see it with Johnson at the moment. Mm. Mm. Right. Okay. Let's have a look now. There's a brilliant article in the Japan Times about the Todai riots of 1968. Something I confess I knew nothing about. So fill us in. Well, very few of us over here do, but this will be a trip down memory lane for our uh, older listeners in the Far East, I think. Um, so it's a historic feature from the Japan Times, um, what we would term here the university riots, these went from 68 to 69. And it's a showcase for the photographer's photographs of Hitomi Watanabe, who was a young female photographer who embedded with the student radicals. Um, and for six months, they essentially took over the campus at Tokyo University. Um, it began as a protest against unpaid internships. It spiralled off into a variety of left-leaning causes. It's largely sort of what the Red Army came out of. The um, A lot of the sort of women's rights groups in Japan came out of. It was a sort of crucible for this sort of radicalism. And it was really part of that whole wave of protests that swept the world in 68, 69 from, you know, Vietnam protests, riots in France. Um, it's fascinating. I mean, partly as a historical document. I mean, the photos are so vivid and incredibly bloody. But it runs so counter to this stereotypical view that we often hold in this country of what sort of society Japan is. You know, we think of it as this very conformist, hyper-orderly, law-abiding society. And they include some text in the piece from the original Japan Times reports, uh, the contemporaneous reports from the time, where they recount it took 8,500 riot police to re-seize the campus, while the students held blazing Molotov cocktails, acid bottles and huge chunks of concrete slabs and rocks at the policemen from the roof of the auditorium. Which, dare I say, it challenges some preconceptions about the way that Japanese universities do things. It very much does, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> I think they may have cracked down on that behaviour fairly soon afterwards. But um, yeah, it's, it's a really, the photos are incredible. It's a really fascinating window into a very important part of Japanese political history that we probably don't know enough about in this country. Um, finally, let's have a look at um, the, the, story, the state of play on the, on the high streets at the moment. I think for, for people who haven't maybe gone for a walk down uh, London's main shopping centre, Oxford Street, in the last few weeks. Just to paint us a picture of, of, of what a post-pandemic Oxford Street looks like. There's a lot of sweets. Um, there's a huge amount of sweets. It appears about two out of every three shops at the moment are pending investigations, what may be, should we diplomatically say, a front for certain other businesses. <laughs> there, is a, there is an ongoing investigation by Westminster Council into why one street can suddenly sustain 35 shops selling bars of chocolate for £6 a time. Um, 
all the key, what you may remember as the big old sort of like grand damn department stores have long gone. It's in a bit of a sorry state. And all of this, all the arguments around this are currently crystallising on one of the last remaining grand department stores, the old Marks and Spencer's flagship on Oxford, Oxford Street. Um, beautiful historic old building, probably not fit for purpose anymore, and is currently in this tug of war between people who want to demolish it and replace it with a much more energy efficient building with a longer future, and campaigners who are arguing this is going to release 40,000 tonnes of carbon into the atmosphere um, that the building has to be uh, retained and reused. Was going to be demolished. Michael Gove, the Secretary for Leveling Up and various other jobs that nobody else wants to do, has been uh, appointed to look into this, so the whole thing's currently on hold. It's essentially every issue which is going on around uh, the high street, the environment, circular economies, zero-impact buildings, um, all just meeting at this one point. Brilliant long read in today's Guardian by Sarah Butler, which Uh, details all this. And an interesting fact is that the government is now stepping in because one would have thought that retail and and real estate could work this one out for themselves without the government getting involved. Now, is this because the retail and real estate cannot do it or is this because the government wants to have a say? I think it's a bit of both. I mean, that's a politician's answer there. Mm. Um, I think they're they're essentially retail and real estate are coming at this from two different angles. Um, There are, if you're in development, there are clear arguments for just bulldozing buildings and putting up very cheap new builds. If you're in retail, there's arguments for approaching things in another way. Um, To be fair to both parties, I don't think there's an easy answer here. A new building will clearly be much more energy efficient in the long run. Um, It will work better. I think the current one is full of asbestos. You know, there's things that need disposing of. Um, It has turned very, very nasty. Um, In quoted in the piece, uh, Sasha Berenji, the M&S property property director, um, points to the sort of woeful state of Oxford Street, goes studs up on Michael Gove himself and said, (laughs) Gove appears to prefer a proliferation of stores hawking counterfeit goods to a gold standard retail regeneration of the nation's favourite high streets. What I find really strange is this seems to be a particularly British thing. Mm. Because, you know, if you walk down down the Champs-Élysées in Paris, if you walk, you know, down the the Tournaboni in... in, 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 uh, Oh, goodness me, where's Tournaboni? It's in in, in Florence. Um, You don't have sweet shops. No. Why? Why do I'm I'm absolutely gobsmacked by this. I mean, it's a nightmare as a mother of a ten-year-old. It's it's just Oxford Street is an absolute no-go area, as far as I can gather. But why is it that the Brits do this? I mean, do you do you know of any other countries who have this this existential wrestle with retail? I think we've got this weird thing where what it actually reminds me of is when you used to come out of Gare du Nord in the sort of bad old days about twenty years ago in Paris. And there was that long strip, I think it was up like Rue de Sebastopol, when you'd be walking up, and there'd just be those sort of endless shops selling like hooky knockoff Nike trainers that were in shrink wrap <laughs> plastic and, you know, just sort of like weird kind of international phone cards and stuff. And it sort of feels like London has managed to take all that sort of like slightly illicit grim stuff, which should be parked away on the fringes by a train station, and just plonked it right in the middle of the town centre. Um, I, I have no idea how. I mean, but then to be honest, Oxford Street has been fairly grim as long as I can remember. You know, I grew up in London. As a teenager, mm. I don't remember Oxford Circus. It wasn't like Bond Street. No. Um, but, you know, and I should say, if, you know, listeners are coming to London, just swerve Oxford Street entirely, come to Marylebone, come to near where Monocle 24 is. We're right by Chilton Street. It's far more pleasant, lots of independent retailers and an excellent cafe. You're quite right. Justin Quirk, thank you so much for joining us in the studio today in Monocle on Saturday. Caffeined up uh, so you can 
you can, you're free to go. Thank you for having me. Enjoy the rest of your day. Uh, Justin, thank you. It's time now to hear from Andrew Muller. He'll be telling us what we haven't known for the last seven days. Here's what we learned. We learned this week that looking at stripy items turns children gay. It was news to us as well. We learned this from the Ministry of Commerce of the Kingdom of Saudi Arabia, whose word for this sort of thing obviously has to be taken extremely seriously. We learned that the Ministry's diligent invigilators have been staging raids on shops in Riyadh and seizing children's clothes and toys deemed to be worrisomely rainbow-patterned. And we learned that the Ministry had kindly obviated our need to stress that we are not making any of this up by filming and broadcasting actual grown men salaried employees of the state fossicking through rails and shelves of brightly coloured kid stuff in search of degenerate merchandise to confiscate and adding their own suitably dramatic music. While this may all appear to the untrained observer like an absolutely abject waste of everybody's time, we learned that this was far from the case. The Ministry explained itself with a statement, which will now be read with solemnity befitting the seriousness of the menace they are seeking to thwart by Monocle 24's completely sane and normal occurrences desk chief, Fernando Augusto Pacheco. Our supervisory teams carry out rounds of sales outlets, seize and confiscate products that contain symbols and indications that call for anomalies and contradict normal common sense. And who can argue with that? We would mildly note that we have also learned that the shirt Saudi Arabia's football team proposes to wear at this November's World Cup has a green stripe around the collar. And that there is, and we checked, a green stripe in rainbows, which means that there is surely a thin end of the wedge concern here, Saudi Arabia's footballers being only the width of six more coloured bands from scarcely imaginable depravity. This is something the ministry's inspectors should probably look into once they have completed the vital task with which they are presently occupied. We learned anyway that it had been quite the week for banning stuff as we learned that listeners to Ukrainian radio stations would henceforth have to struggle along without hearing much of this sort of thing. Raspberry Lada there by the Gayazov brothers, a Moscow duo whose name may also preclude them from much of a career in Saudi Arabia. You see how cleverly and subtly stitched together these monologues are, you see. We learned that the Gayazovs and all other modern Russian artists are to be henceforth banished from Ukraine's airwaves. Can we get a sort of shepherd's crook whisking off stage kind of noise behind banished? Righto, let's try this. Banished from Ukraine's airwaves. (laughs) 
There it is. After Ukraine's parliament, which, with all due respect to their nation's present struggles, one might have imagined having more urgent matters to which they could be usefully attending, passed a new law to that effect. So, just to make our position clear, while we're not necessarily against threatening some sort of prosecution to prevent people listening to or indeed making this sort of racket, whether it comes from Russia or anywhere else, really, we learned, much to our bewilderment, that wielding any legal sanction whatsoever is actually necessary. Anyway... Sticking with the theme of people making strange choices, we learned that, if polls are any guide, the voters of the American state of Missouri are reasonably likely to send this thundering jackass to the U.S. Senate. I'm Eric Greitens, Navy SEAL, and today we're going rhino hunting. The rhino feeds on corruption and is marked by the stripes of cowardice. To lend context to the extremely clever joke underpinning this campaign ad, RINO is an acronym denoting Republican in name only. And because it is also a homophone, that's a linguistic term, not something Saudi Arabia's Ministry of Commerce needs to worry about. Again, these monologues aren't just slung together. A homophone for rhino, as in abbreviation of rhinoceros, Eric Greiton, for it is he, has brilliantly and wittily conflated the two, proceeding on the doubtless correct assumption that shooting both kinds of rhinos is the sort of thing of which his voters would approve. Do you see what he has done here? Honestly, he must have had his best people up all night on this one. <laughs> Rhino, as in Republican in name only, is a term of abuse frequently flung by seething Trumpists in the direction of those of their fellow conservatives who also maintain a passing interest in the Constitution, the rule of law, norms and conventions, that kind of stuff. Greitens, previously actually governor of Missouri, which we suppose somebody has to be, appears in his ad-slash-thinly-veiled death threat carrying a shotgun and surrounded by cosplaying ninnies in khaki camouflage. Join the MAGA crew, get a rhino hunting permit. There's no bagging limit, no tagging limit, and it doesn't expire until we save our country. Intrigued enough to have a bit of a flip through the governor's CV, we learned, though would characterize our surprise as short of complete, that subheadings on his Wikipedia page include, but are by no means limited to, indictment, impeachment and resignation, campaign finance violations, and affair and sexual assault allegations. It's always the ones you least suspect. For Monocle 24, I'm Andrew Muller. And my thanks to Andrew Muller and the team who pull that together every single week. You're listening to Monocle 24. Monocle on Sunday is back in a moment. The Foreign Desk is Monocle 24's weekly global affairs programme. We tackle the world's biggest news stories, as well as those left untold. If actually you speak to the ordinary people, their aspirations is for a unified country, whether you talk to business people, to school teachers, to market traders, and so on and so forth, across the board is they want to see their country recreated as it was, only this time as a democratic, accountable system. Our expert guests offer in-depth analysis and first-hand experience. In one of the Ebola treatment centres I went to had been burned down by a community that were very resentful and frightened of Ebola, and they still have a bunker in the middle. They've dug a big, deep bunker where they can hide if people come and shoot at them. The Foreign Desk with me, Andrew Muller, is available every Saturday from midday London time, right here on Monocle 24.
Hoddle. And finally, on today's programme, London's Royal College of Art is inaugurating a newly designed premises in London's Battersea with a graduate show that opens to the public today and runs until the end of this month. The outgoing class of 2022 will exhibit their works ranging from jewellery to sculpture, textiles and paintings in the rousing research and innovation building, the freshly open structure designed by Herzog and de Meuron and just a short distance from the RCA's flagship Dyson building in Battersea. This is all incredibly impressive stuff. So Monocle's Grace Charleston visited the exhibition for us and sent us this report. London's highly ranked Royal College of Art is opening its doors to the public to enjoy its graduate show featuring works from the outgoing class of 2022. The exhibition will be taking place in the college's campuses in Kensington and in Battersea and feature artworks ranging from jewellery to sculpture, textiles and paintings. Part of the graduate show is being held in the rousing research and innovation building, the freshly opened structure designed by Herzog and Dumeron a short distance from the RCA's flagship Dyson building in Battersea. The new campus provides space for studios, learning and research, but also to exhibit thanks to the adjustable walls that can be reconfigured according to need. On short notice, the art and design studios can be quickly packed up to make way for gallery space. A large foyer that has been named The Hangar is where students studying various courses like contemporary art practice and innovation design engineering can socialise and exchange ideas. It's a much bigger and much more different setup in comparison to what we have in Kensington. Of course, the buildings as well are very different. Here, it's, it's everything's brand new, it's clean, it's white, you know. No one's been in here. And it's also much higher ceilings, which is great. Leah Rose Cara is finishing her Master's in Sculpture, which she mostly studied for in the RCA's Grade 2 listed building in Kensington. She tells us about how this new space will hopefully invigorate future students. It's very different because also the light comes from above and you have windows, but they're very, they're very different. I think the benefit is that you have the space. But then equally, hopefully in the future, they'll be able to block out some things and build their own rooms, because I can imagine people who need like a dark space or things like that, they can utilise that, which again, because of the building that Kensington was, you just can't do that. The space that you have is the space that you have. The South London-based building features a bricks-and-mortar facade with polished concrete interiors and an industrial feel that has been built to withstand students who sometimes operate heavy machinery and need to move big pieces of installation art around. In the brief, the RCA required a six-inch play area between the surface of the floor and the electrics and the water pipes below after sculpture students in the previous building drilled a little too far down and hit a mains cable. It's quite rough and tough in here, isn't it? You know, you're moving heavy kit around. You've got, you know, big, big pieces of art. You've got a lot of machinery. You've got robotics arms, you know. So all of these things do demand a very, very kind of robust base to them. Dr Paul Thompson, the Vice-Chancellor of the RCA, tells us a little more on the need for foolproof design. This isn't a moment for beautiful teak finishes or, or, you know, Murano glass hand-blown lampshades, you know, it's got that kind of industrial making feel, which actually I think is entirely appropriate to the way artists, designers, engineers, architects, you know, want to work. 
The new rousing building opens up to the neighbourhood around it, with full-height windows, two distinct wings on the floors above, and balconies that open onto the street from the design studios. The Swiss practice Erzog and Dummerholm won the architectural competition for the design of this RCA structure in 2016, thanks to their consideration of the Badassee neighbourhood. And in a hundred years' time, people are going to look at it and still say, my goodness, that's such a fine building. You know, I think Herzog de Marant have really done us proud. They were a delight to work with, but I think, you know, they really understood the neighbourhood and were fascinated by the neighbourhood, which is such a, an eclectic mix, both in terms of the architecture, you know, the high and the low of Norman Foster buildings and then 19th century Victorian terraced houses and 1970s speculative office blocks. It's such a hodgepodge. But I think they've cut through all of that kind of, that chatter. The teaching staff of the Royal College of Art were also able to give their input. And here to tell us more is Chantal Faust, head of the Contemporary Arts Practice MA. Staff were heavily involved in the design. So we were presented with the floor plan and we worked really closely with the project team at Battersea South in setting up these as studio spaces that could be converted into exhibition spaces for show. So we wanted them to be really flexible, something that we can use as our curriculum develops next year, but also in the years to come. We're still getting to know the space. And I think that's quite an exciting place to be. It's got a lot of potential. We can move things around. We've got a designated project space now, which we've never had before. The outgoing students currently exhibiting their art have only been in the building since March onwards, and only a couple of weeks for some. We spoke to Sarah Sasha, a contemporary art practice graduate, to find out how this new space has been received by the students. I am inspired by what people are doing in the school, definitely, especially like what people are doing in the robotics lab and everything has really inspired me to further work on my own projects uh, through robotics and add sort of motion sensored motors and also within my video game I trigger this motor which is in the sort of physical dimension so yeah it's been really inspiring to see all these new technologies developing at the RCA and it's been really inspiring me to also further develop my own practice through the route of new technologies. London's Royal College of Art graduate show opens to the public tomorrow and will be running until June 30th across its campuses in Kensington and Battersea. For Monocle in London, I'm Grace Charlton. Thank you, Grace. And that's all we have time for today's edition of Monocle on Saturday. Thanks to my guests and to our studio engineer, Steph Chungu, as well. I'm Emma Nelson. Monocle on Saturday is back at the same time next Saturday. But for now, from me, goodbye. Thank you very much for listening. I'll be back with Monocle on Sunday and Monocle Weekends will be live in Stad tomorrow. So lots to look forward to. Stay tuned. And more music comes up in a little while. 